0: Actually, we're going to stand in the scripture reading. So, Romans chapter 8 is where I'll be reading from this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God... For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you must die will live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, God, for all that you have recorded in your word for us. You've said that it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And God, we ask that as we need, that you would speak to us, address us, Lord, as we need to be, whatever that would be, and that we would receive and accept in faith Yielding to you, Lord, in obedience. Thank you God, for loving us and for being willing to teach us and to guide us into all that is true. in Jesus name. Amen. You're seated. We're still in the life of David in Second Samuel, and we're going to be picking up that story um, this morning when we left off in chapter 15 and 16. But I read from um, Romans 8 this morning because one thing we're seeing with the life of David here as we get to his older years. And in these chapters that we're looking at 15, 16, 17, on through there, he's in his 60s now. And as he's approaching um, the last chapters of his life, he dies at 70, um, things are getting bigger. And, and the contrasts are sharper. So last week we looked at the friends of David and the enemies of David. Sharp contrast. It's not always so sharp. Sometimes in life we're not quite sure who our friends are. We're not quite sure who our enemies, who our enemies are. But at this point in David's life, he knows exactly who his friends and enemies are. He has some great, great friends. And he has some horrific enemies. There's not much in between. Contrast, extremes. I sat with Major Ian Thomas one time after he'd had a heart attack and was recovering in the hospital in San Antonio, and he, and he was sharing war stories like he's never shared before. And so I wished I'd had a tape recorder to listen to those stories. But one of the things I'll never forget him saying is that one thing about war is that it is extreme. Everything about warfare is extreme. He says, you are either extremely um, terrified or extremely bored. You can be extremely hungry and extremely satisfied, extremely despairing and sad and extremely joyful. He says that's one of the hardest things about warfare is it's so extreme. When we were kids, at least when I was a kid, and we colored in colored books, and now adults are coloring in colored books again, um, I remember those first boxes of crayons, and they were basically, what, eight, six, eight, or something, just the primary colors. And one of our, we were taught, I think we were, by the teacher, was one of the favorite and most useful colors was black, because it was the outline, the border. And so in every picture that we colored, we had a stark black outline around it, and it just made it pop out, made it look all the more vivid, that contrast that was put there. Now, in life, we look at our liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, huge contrast. We don't like it a whole lot. Why can't we come somewhere in the middle? We get to the end of our lives, and like David, I know I can say, we can look at our lives and go, these are some of the best friends I have ever had in my entire life. And at the same time, have some of the worst enemies you've ever had. And we don't like those contrasts. It would be less painful if we could kind of just live in the middle somewhere. But more to the point, in this chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, Paul speaks about the contrast within the individual Christian experience. Where he says, the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. That is an individual Christian's experience. Death is death in life. He's not even talking about relationships. In the last verse that I read, For if you are living, Christian, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Contrast. Stark, bold, extreme contrast. This is something that is hard for us all to appreciate in the lives of other people, sometimes even in our own lives. Where a person can be in the twilight years of their life and be godly, truly godly, and yet behind the curtain of that same person can be extreme ungodly. And it's hard to deal with. How can this one person... They're not being fake. You can know them well and see Jesus clearly in this person. But you can also see things that are totally contrary to Christ. And it's hard for us to grapple with that. But it is the the flesh and the spirit warring and that battle is always there we can walk in Christ and Christ will be clearly seen but none of us walk with Christ 100% of every day ask your spouse (laughs) and you feel like sometimes your head's going to snap off because on one hand it's Jesus on the other hand it's flesh Life, death. And if you're younger in the faith, you can just go, what am I seeing here? You're seeing the contrast between life and death. You're seeing a contrast between Jesus and flesh. And it is in all of us. And we're seeing that with David. So as I, in my own meditation and, and studying of these chapters, man, I just go, I don't like these chapters. I, I wish that these things weren't even in the Bible. In fact, they're not in First and Second Chronicles. The guy, whoever that was, that wrote those two books, he laughed out all this bad stuff about David. He's like, we really need to hear it one time, <laughs> thankfully. And he says, let's just move on. Let's just focus on the good stuff, which we all want to do. But I'm thankful that God included this because David was a man to the very end after God's own heart. And he had feet of clay, just like all of us do. And he was not happy about the extremes in his own life, you know it. A son, Absalom, who wants him dead. Broke David's heart. But other people in his life who were willing to die for David. Talk about contrast in extreme. A son, your own flesh and blood that says, I wish he was dead and I'd kill him if I had the chance. And other men who are saying, I would give my life for this man. Man, I tell you, as, as you know, being at his hill these years, I mean, there's times I'm just going, God, what is going on? There'll be one student that just thinks I am Hitler. And they go, why is that man even in the ministry? And there'll be another student that's writing home and saying, this is the greatest man I've ever met in my life. Well, I know the truth is, I'm probably a lot closer to Hitler. (laughs) But... (laughs) The truth is, I mean, it's just these contrasts. And it's so hard to deal with. But it's in all of us. Life and death. And I wonder, as the body ages and the eyes get dimmer and the ears get duller, if maybe the contrast between life and death in the individual Christian is not drawn sharper. And it's supposed to be that way as an encouragement to the younger people who still have good ears and good eyes, see it and know that you're headed in the same direction. And don't despair. Don't give up. Don't lose hope in God as you see humanity for what it's really like. So in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel... The subheading in my Bible says Absalom's conspiracy. And we briefly looked at it last week. Absalom heralds himself as king. David understands now what's going on, so he leaves Jerusalem. Absalom marches in with the little loyal army that he had with him. And then the first thing that Absalom did under the counsel of Ahithophel, one of David's former best friends, was take ten of David's concubines and have sex with them on the roof of the palace so as to solidify his, his rule over the kingdom. Absalom had no regard for those women. It was just a statement of disdain for his father. It was purposeful in humiliating his father and trying to make the most dramatic statement that he could that he was in control. When David finally comes back to Jerusalem, he'll never have um, intimacy with those women again. They basically, the Bible says, they live as widows for the rest of their life. It's tragic what Absalom did. We have, in chapter 16, Ziba the guy that had been taking care of all of Mephibosheth's property came to David and it would appear lied and said, I'm here bringing all this good stuff, food and provisions for you. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? And, 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 and Ziba says, well, he stayed back in the palace because he's thinking maybe he's going to get control of the kingdom again and continue the reign of Saul, his grandfather. David believed it and gave everything that Mephibosheth owned to Ziba. We've often heard that in times of extreme crisis and emotional upheaval, that is not the time to be making significant decisions. And this is one example of that. This was not the time for David to be making that kind of decision with no supportive evidence, just one man's word. And David will end up Partially reversing that decision later. This guy named Sheba comes out of nowhere, chapter 16, verse 5, and starts cussing David. Throwing rocks and dirt at David. Man deserved to die for what he was doing. He lies and says in verse 7, he says, Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. This is his lie, verse 8. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. It's not true. Absolute, 100% lie. In whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom, and behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Now, it's true that David was a man of bloodshed. But Saul, but he was not one who had shed the blood of the house of Benjamin. He's done nothing wrong to Saul or his descendants. He's taken the men. Mephibosheth is one of those. And so this is an absolute lie. And the man deserved to die. David, in his brokenness and his humility, he says in verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zerai?" Those are the men who Joab and Abishai that wanted to kill Shimei. And David said, if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Fast forwarding to 1 Kings, there's going to be an occasion when when Solomon truly has his heart turned away from God. And he starts following after idols. And the Lord begins raising up enemies to Saul. And those enemies are going to have specific things that they hate about, said Saul, about Solomon. Specific things that they hate about Solomon. But those aren't the reasons that Solomon has enemies in his life. Solomon has enemies in his life because he is worshiping idols. The enemies don't even care about the idols. And the temptation, and Solomon fell victim to the temptation is to look at the words of the enemies and defend yourself and say, the the words are wrong, therefore I'm correct. And not ask the question, why has God raised up enemies? Maybe the enemy is completely wrong, but God is after something else in my life, and I won't respond except by the instrument of of an enemy. I've had those people in my life where their accusations were wrong, absolutely wrong. But it doesn't go away It's like a thorn, it just festers. And I can focus on the thorn and try and get rid of the thorn, or I can say, God, what are you trying to teach me? And he says to be thankful in all things, even for the enemies. And I know that God has used those enemies, those festering thorns, those false accusations to humble me, keep me dependent. And my whole perspective changes when I can say, God, I see if this is for no other reason than to keep me humble and dependent, it's a good thing. Thank you for this. And it truly from the heart, thank God for the place that he has me. And David saying, if my son wants me dead, who is this Benjamin? Who am I to say kill him? God is obviously getting at something in my life. Humility. I appreciate it. Chapter 17, Hushai, friend of David, and Ahithophel have contrasting counsel to Absalom about what should be the next step of action. Ahithophel says, go get your dad now and kill him. And it sounded good. And the word of Ahithophel was like the word of God in those days, the scripture says. Hushai, though, they brought him in and they said, Hushai, what do you say? And Hushai says, you know, man, this, this, this guy has done, given tremendous advice. His whole life. But this one time, I have to respectfully disagree. And Hushai says, Absalom, you know your dad is a warrior. And he is like a bear robbed of its cubs on the battlefield. You don't want to go after your dad with a small army. You want to gather all Israel together and overwhelm him. And then you can win and it will be a decisive battle and all Israel will be with you in the battle. Don't go after your dad right now. He will defeat you. And it sounded good to Absalom and all of his counselors. And Ahithophel went out and killed himself. God used Hushai to overthrow the counsel of the most respected advisor in all of Israel in one moment. And it spared the life of David. Because if they had followed Ahithophel's advice and taken and gone after David that night, they would have killed him. So God intervenes through the friend of David, and his life is spared. God is in control. Even when there are enemies, and people are giving counsel where they want to see our downfall, God is still in control. And he can bring the right people in at the right time, people who who have less respect and less influence and move hearts where he wants them to be moved. We were talking the other evening at our house. Some of the students were up for burgers and and the conversation went to persecution. And and we hear these tremendous, encouraging and miraculous stories on occasion where, where somebody has had... Um, had people come and attack them, and they've and they've and they've stopped because they've seen angels guarding them. I heard one of those stories: a retired missionary woman to the former British Congo, Zaire, and and Helen Roosevelt. And in one occasion, they came to her home, and they were, the rebels were rushing at her home to take her. They had taken boys and girls and missionaries and killed them, and they're coming to take her, and they stopped. And they all went back into the forest. And she later heard it was because they saw huge, giant warriors standing on either side of her. Angels. And they were terrified. They turned and ran for their lives. Tremendous. But another occasion they come and she's not protected. She's beaten. She's raped. She's put in a rape camp. Spent months In that can. And she says, the whole time she's saying, God, why? You delivered me before. You could have delivered me now. And she said, the one word that kept coming back into her heart was privilege. Privilege. Count it all a privilege. At this time, I need a body to be abused, to be violated, in order to show. My love for this evil world. Even as I needed Jesus, human, to t- Christ to take on humanity so that the world could see the love of God through his suffering on our behalf. Privilege. Sometimes God delivers, sometimes he'll turn the hearts of men, put in advisors, put in saviors, and other times he doesn't. God is still in control. Chapter 18 Absalom finally gathers all of Israel. They go after David. David only has a, a small army in comparison to all Israel that's come against him. And being the shrewd warrior that he is, and having the excellent generals that he has under him, that he, that he has with Joab and Abishai and Ittai, they chose the battleground to be in a forest smart. If you've got a massive national army against a small force, you want to be able to choose the place of battle. And they chose a forest because they knew, probably one, there's going to be a lot fewer arrows flying in a forest. And they would have had, David's army, a much smaller amount of arrows than the whole army of Israel. So let's go fight in the forest. And as they're running and Chasing after each other, some of them on donkeys. The scripture says the force killed more people than the sword did. And in all that melee and confusion, Absalom, with his long hair, he only cut his hair once a year. And when he did, his hair weighed over five pounds, I think the scripture says. Lots of hair. Well, he must have been near haircut season. Um, because he's charging through the forest on his donkey and his hair gets caught up in a tree. He's just kind of bopping around and his hair gets snagged in the tree. Donkey goes right out from under him and he's standing there. Well, he must have not had a sword with him or a knife because this is a good time to give yourself a haircut. And he doesn't. And he's just hanging from the tree by his hair. And here comes one of David's soldiers. And he let him be. And that soldier told Joab, Hey, I found Joab. I saw it found Absalom. He's hanging from a tree. Did you kill him? I'm not going to kill him. Well, why not? Because David said in the presence of all David's army, if you find him, have mercy on him. Don't kill him. You think I'm going to kill him? And Joab said, show me where he's at. And Joab took three darts in his hand and plunged them through his heart. And then he had ten men with him and he said, all you ten guys, you stab him as well. And then he took his body, threw it in a a ravine and piled it over with rocks. David didn't even have the opportunity to bury his own son. This would be one of five times that Joab disobeys David. David gave a clear command on five different occasions. And Joab says, that's stupid. I got other plans. And on every occasion, I believe Joab was acting in what he thought was the best interest of the nation. And Joab, being the military man that he was and understanding of human nature like he had, he was saying, this nation will never be safe as long as that man's alive. I don't care what the king said, he's thinking like a father and not like a king. He's going to die. So he killed him. Now, David was undone. He gets word of this, chapter 18, verse 31. And behold, the Cushite arrived. So so Joab sent runners to tell David what's happened. And the Cushite runner arrived and said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. In other words, he's dead. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. So he's right in the gate of this small fortified city and apparently there was a room above the gate, and he goes up there and he bawls. There wouldn't have been good soundproofing back in those days. You would have heard the king up there bawling his eyes out, sobbing. And he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What does that say to the men who just risked their lives for David? I would rather have had my son live than myself. And they're thinking, what have we been doing? David is once again thinking and acting as a father and not as a king. Then it was told, Joab chapter 19, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab comes in and kicks him in the seat of the pants. Joab came into the, into the house To the king, and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you, by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Get up. Stop this nonsense. David was probably eaten up with guilt over his failure as a father toward this man. Eaten up with guilt because when he had the time, the opportunity to truly reconcile to his son, he never took it. And I found it interesting that J. Vernon McGee speculates that David's guilt was probably, or his grief was probably compounded because he didn't believe his son Absalom knew the Lord. And he is not going to see his son when he dies. Grief and sorrow like few people can know. No wonder he was so broken. But at the same time, he is king. And David has forgotten it. This is hard to say because I am not a good example of it. We do not have the right to, to emote like we want to emote. Just because you may feel depressed doesn't mean you have the right to live in depression. Just because you may be happy doesn't mean you can sing a song at a funeral. There is no place in Scripture that, is more, that speaks more clearly that we have no right to our emotions than in Ezekiel 24, where God says to that man, I'm going to kill your wife, and you're not going to cry. Your wife is going to die tonight, Ezekiel, and you're going to go out tomorrow and give no indication of mourning. And people are going to go, what is this about? Why aren't you grieving over the loss of your wife? And he loved his wife. And you're going to tell him, it's because this is how I as God am feeling about Israel. You're going to be an example of me. And that means you don't have the right to your own emotions. You do not even have the right to publicly grieve. My little grandson, Weston, other than my other three grandsons, greatest kids alive. I'm a grandfather. I have that right. But when Weston's hurt himself, he gets really emotional. The other day, Patsy was taking care of him, and he walked by plant and got, you know, I don't know what it was, a nettle or something, and, and so he's stinging, and, then he's, and he's upset, and so... Michael, his dad, and I pulled in right as he was, you know, you know, just kind of getting over it. And as soon as he sees his dad, he, oh, he falls apart again. And, and so, you know, and we're all trying to figure out what happened to him. Because we can see some little bumps on his leg and on his, on his ankle there. And we're thinking, was he bitten? Was he, was he stung? Was, was this plant? And so, and so I, I pull his leg toward me and I'm looking at it. And he did his typical, you know, I'm out of control reaction. And he at his teeth, and he pointed his finger, and he says, no! <laughs> and I have conflicting emotions at that time. <laughs> and his dad is doing a great job teaching him you can't react like that, because when he's upset, and somebody knows that he's upset, he gets embarrassed and goes, no! And he'll point your, his finger, at No! Because he do not want you looking at him while he's upset. He's embarrassed. And so next time I saw little Weston, he told, I think, he's, I forget, but he said, you know, I said no to Pop. Okay, and so he had been told, this is not right. You can't react that way. Well, I tell you that story because, see, his dad is trying to teach him there is a valid and an invalid way to express your emotions, and you do not have the right to your emotions to just do whatever you want with them. Well, the next morning, his dad was pulling out of his garage with his door open on his car, looked behind his seat, smacked the door into the garage. $2,000 of damage to that door. Plus, $2,100 damage. Now, if it had been me, I wouldn't have been emoting very well. I would have been a study in hypocrisy of what I'm trying to teach my children and what I'm displaying myself. But I couldn't have been more proud of Michael at that time. And I thought, everything he's trying to teach his son... He is modeling right now by the grace of God. It's not just children who don't have the right to act out however they please. None of us. And, the, and, we, and, and we're so ruled by our emotions. Good days, bad days, good hair day, bad hair day, happy wife, happy life. Stepping on toes now, maybe. We don't have the right. We truly don't have the right. It's hard. And this is the crucified life. It's not our time. We don't own time. It's not our money. It's not our possessions. It's not our life. And it's certainly not our right to our emotions. And it's not that God doesn't want us to grieve or God doesn't want us to be elated. The emotions themselves are not sinful. But when we are being ruled by the emotions instead of by Christ, that's the problem. He is the be Lord even of our emotions. Absalom is dead. David thanks his men, for risking their lives on his behalf. And now it's time to become king again. And Judah, his own tribe, is not taking the initiative. The rest of Israel, at least half of the rest of Israel, is saying, what are we doing? What have we done? David has always been a good king. Let's take him back. Judah wasn't doing anything. And so David speaks to them. And so this is in... Again, chapter 19, and picking it up in in verse 9, And all the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he is fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? So Israel is quarreling about what to do about David. So David addresses Judah, verse 11. And King David sent to Zadok and Abathar the priest saying, speak to the elders of Judah saying, why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house. You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, are, are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me more also if you will not become the commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. And with that, he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, saying, "Return you and all your servants." Now here's the lesson here. David was never meant by God to be a dictator. His, for, his power was not held by force. He was to be loved and accepted on that basis or rejected. Freely loved, freely rejected. Which is the same kind of leadership the Lord wants to have over you and me. Say, free love that can be accepted or rejected. And so David's basically pronouncing amnesty toward Judah. They were the big problem. They were the ones that followed after, principally after Absalom as well as the rest of Israel. But the big problem was Judah, the house of David. And David says, "I'm available." but you're going to have to make me king. I am not going to march back in. You have to ask me to come back. Amazing here again. Humility. And so David says, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to kill anybody. In fact, I will make Amasa the new commander of my army in place of Joab. And the people go, you come back. We want you. I think it it, 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 was... This is one of those places in the Old Testament where there is a clear picture of Christ. Jesus not only came to this world the first time to willingly offer himself as king, and he was rejected by his own people. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We know that much. What many times we forget about is that the scripture says in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 that Jesus is not going to come again until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we put all the emphasis as evangelicals living in the United States that Jesus will not come to establish his kingdom again until the earth has been evangelized. Because the scripture speaks about that. That's just one thing that has to happen. The other is is that Israel has to say, come home. We want you. That's what what David is doing here. I'm your king, but I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I won't come to where I'm supposed to be until you, my people, invite me. And to this day, Jesus is still waiting for Israel to say, you are our king. Come home. And he will come again to this earth to establish himself as king. I'll just finish with one more thought here. And it has to do with Mephibosheth in verse 24 of this chapter. Remember Ziba the servant. Mephibosheth wants to take the throne back for his for the house of Saul. And now Mephibosheth comes, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet nor trimmed his mustache nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he came back in home in peace. And it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why, do you not, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O my lord, the king, my servant, Ziba, deceived me. For your servant said I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is not like the angel of God, it is like the angel of God; therefore do what is good in your sight, for all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king. So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth responded, because see, why is it going 50-50? He should have all of it. Ziba has lied and slandered him. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take it all. Since my lord the king has come home safely to his own house, I don't even care. I just care that you're home. David set the stage for Solomon's decision to split the baby. You realize that? Remember, this, these two prostitutes are going to come to Solomon arguing over which baby belongs to whom. And Solomon's going to say... Cut the baby in half. And the woman who was the mother said, No, let the baby live. And all of a sudden we know who the real mother is. I wonder if Solomon wasn't standing with his dad when he heard what he did here with Mephibosheth. And David wasn't trying to expose the truth. I think David was just trying to get the problem out of his life and just say, you can take 50, and you can take 50, I don't care, I'm not dealing with it anymore. It was just the easy solution. But when Mephibosheth responded the way that he did, I wonder if young Solomon's not saying, that's interesting. Now we know who the innocent party really is because of the way the man responded. I don't even care about the stuff. I just care about you. And so I wonder if... God didn't prompt that in Solomon's heart and mind when those two prostitutes stood before him arguing over a baby. And Solomon says, cut it in half. And in his heart, he knew this is going to expose who the real mother is. It's amazing how God will use all things and turn them for good. Shimei, the guy that cursed David and threw rocks at him, also comes back around. And interestingly, not only does he say, I have sinned, and David forgives him, but the man shows up with a thousand men with him. wonder why he didn't come alone. I wonder if he wasn't really expecting to be forgiven. And he came with people prepared to defend him. And even though David defended him, David pardoned him, forgave him. By coming with a thousand men, it showed that he's ready to defend himself if he has to. And later, before David dies, he's going to say to Solomon, Oh, about Shimei? Kill him. Because David could deal with those thousand men. But he's afraid his young son... There's a man out there who has lived to curse the king and talk about it. And he's so influential that he has a thousand men who are prepared to die for him. <coughs> Young Solomon, you're never going to be able to rule as long as that man is out there. You've got to kill him. So much going on in these passages. But I'll end with coming back to where I started. What a study in contrast and that is in every one of us we do no one any good including ourselves when we put demands on people that they be as perfect as Jesus is when we walk according to the spirit there will be no sin first john says that but if you say you are without sin you're a liar <laughs> Nobody walks according to the Spirit all the time. And it would seem, the older we get, the sharper the contrast is. And I believe God meant it that way. Maybe to warn the younger generation. If you like what you're seeing about a Spirit-filled life, then choose Jesus. And if you hate what you're seeing about a person who walks according to the flesh, because all Christians do on occasion, then choose Jesus. Because what you're seeing is in you, too. David was a man after God's own heart. And his life was not perfect. There are a lot of messes. Significant, rich relationships that can't be denied. And people who hated his guts and wanted him dead at the same time. Extremes. I'll close this in prayer. We do thank you, Father, that you are the constant in our life. We are not schizophrenic. You are true, unchanging, absolute. It is we, God, who move back and forth from walking according to the Spirit to walking according to the flesh. So we see these extremes, Lord, it should not surprise us. We do thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sovereignty, God, that you are able and willing to work all things together for good. Thank you for the grace that you give us, God, in our lives when at the same time there will be people who love us enough to give their lives for us and others who can't stand the ground that we're walking on. You are adequate for these things, Lord. We are not. I pray that we would be wise and gracious in our dealings with one another, God, as we see these extremes, and that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus, who is our rock and the one constant of life. In his name, amen.